Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Practical Guidance for Surveillance and Reporting in Hemophilia A is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's Dr. Shannon Meeks. Pharmacovigilance is essential for identifying new, rare, or serious adverse drug reactions, or ADRs. Pharmacovigilance is also needed to ensure the safe and efficient use of therapeutic agents in appropriate patient populations. So how can you apply these pharmacovigilance principles and processes to everyday clinical practice? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Shannon Meeks. I'm Dr. Jonathan Roberts. Okay, to start things off, Dr. Roberts, can you please give us an overview of treatments used for the management of hemophilia A? And really, is there any available real-world evidence to tell us about the safety and efficacy of these treatments? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are thankfully many different options now for patients um, for treatments in, in hemophilia A. You know, I think traditionally we've used um, standard half-life factor products and then moving more recently to extended half-life factor products. Um, and, and now we're actually in the era where we have non-factor products um, such as emicizumab and others that are in development um, that are really uh, transforming the management of hemophilia A. So all of the products currently on the market um, are uh, safe. Uh, you know, for the um, factor-based therapies, we worry about inhibitor development, which we are um, consistently um, evaluating our patients for. Um, and then also different types of allergic reactions that can happen, rather whether it's either to the components uh, in the factor products, uh, such as some of the stabilizer products like PEG or other things, um, and, and certainly allergic type reactions can also happen with some of the newer products like uh, emicizumab. No, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, we've got a long track record of looking for adverse reactions and what's happening with our factor products, both the uh, traditional recombinant and plasma-derived factors as well as the extended half-life factors. And I think one of the reasons um, that we really wanted to do this CME today was to give ourselves an opportunity to think about as we start seeing imisuzumab, um, the first non-factor product approved, and potentially the first of many non-factor products and gene therapy and other novel treatments in which we will again need to focus in on adverse drug reactions and reporting and, and what that means both to our patients, but also to the community as a whole. So the next question I have for you is, with this overview in mind, what are the, some of the more common adverse events that are seen with these agents? Sure, very good question. So, you know, for the standard half-life and extended half-life factor products, um, we are always vigilant to evaluate for inhibitor formation. Um, so whether the factor's not working as well, or if a patient is experiencing breakthrough bleeds despite their treatment, those usually signal that we need to look for inhibitors. Um, and we do that at baseline anyway, at least once a year. Sometimes also different reactions can occur to um, different components of the factor products that aren't the factor specifically. 
uh, such as the, the pegylation or other components. Um, and so that always needs to be evaluated and certainly if any reactions occur, um, directed to the treatment center. In the non-factor therapies, um, especially uh, you know, in the HAVEN trials with emicizumab, we did see that there were some thrombotic events and thrombotic microangiopathy that occurred when patients also were being treated with activated prothrombin complex concentrates. So this was really in the setting of patients with inhibitors that were being treated with emicizumab as prophylaxis. And since then, we've also seen some other thrombotic events. So thankfully, these have been uh, uh, infrequent, and certainly the pharmacovigilance process is imperative to report these events so that they can be studied and understand how to mitigate risk in all of our patients. Thanks, Dr. Roberts. And I agree. You know, I think we, uh, as a community in hemophilia and as practitioners, we're really um, good about uh, reporting our adverse events on the clinical trials. And I think some of the um, points that we really wanted to come out of this uh, CME uh, that you heard about uh, earlier with Dr. Lessinger is what adverse events, you know, when they happen outside of clinical trials, obviously the adverse events that happen within clinical trials can happen outside of the trials. But as more and more people are exposed to a drug with many other drug combinations, new adverse events can happen as well. Absolutely. I think it's very important that um, we continue to have good pharmacovigilance. I know we do so in our clinics um, and our colleagues across the country and really across the world do as well. So if some sort of um, adverse event happens um, that may be associated with the medication, uh, it's always important to uh, report it to the manufacturer and have an appropriate process at your individual institution uh, so that we can evaluate those instances and understand them and um, hopefully prevent them from happening in the future. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Shannon Meeks, and here with me today is Dr. Jonathan Roberts. We're discussing the important role of pharmacovigilance in the management of hemophilia A. Now that we have a better understanding of adverse events that can happen with some of the novel therapeutics, Dr. Roberts, can you shed some light on strategies for surveillance and monitoring of both treatment response and adverse drug reactions? So that's a really great question on surveillance. I think it's really important that patients and families develop a system that works for them, monitoring their prophylaxis and recording any type of bleeds or additional treatments that they may need. Traditionally, there's been paper records that patients have done or their mobile apps that are now available that really allow the patient to directly communicate with their treatment center and provider, um, as well as show additional details like images of their bleed um, and any other adverse reactions that may happen. And certainly strengthening that communication between patient and the treatment center provider is imperative uh, so that we can have good continued surveillance of the efficacy of their therapy and also monitoring the safety of their treatment and capturing any adverse reactions that would occur. Certainly if any adverse drug reactions would occur, the pharmacovigilance process would be implemented and the manufacturer notified so that these type of instances can be uh, reduced and treatment strategies can be developed. 
I agree. I think one of the things that's helpful on some of the mobile apps is, is that if a patient um, reports a new adverse event um, that we haven't seen much of, oftentimes the providers are getting notified in real time rather than waiting for them to come to clinic and, and get that um, done. Now let's apply this information using a case. Here's the case for today. A 13-year-old patient with hemophilia notifies you that he's having a localized reaction after receiving his imisuzumab injection. In fact, he actually got his injection yesterday and his localized reaction is starting to calm down. He was talking with his specialty pharmacist today to reorder his no next dose and mentioned that this reaction had occurred and they encouraged him to report it to the treatment center as well. So he now has reached out to the treatment center and Dr. Roberts, a real question for you is, what at the treatment center would you do to start this pharmacovigilance process? And how is that process implemented in your everyday patient care? Yeah, very good question. So, um, so this type of information would first of all go uh, immediately to um, to one of the providers, so one of our physicians here and, and nurse practitioners. Um, and inter interestingly, in the um, emesizumab uh, trials, local site reaction did occur about twenty percent of the time. Um, and the good news is, is over ninety percent of the time, it resolved without treatment. Um, a majority of those patients simply had some redness at the injection site, um, but some did also get uh, puritic, pur puritic or itchiness at the site. And so uh, typically our protocol would be, um, you know, to recommend uh, pre-dosing with uh, diphenhydramine or Benadryl um, to help with the itchiness um, and really watch and monitor the site. Um, thankfully, we've not seen, um, you know, uh, repeat uh, or refractory cases of local reactions like this happening. But in that still, um, having good pharmacovigilance means that we would um, track that that reaction happened and implement the process to notify the manufacturer um, so that we can um, follow up and make sure that we're not seeing a change in what was reported in the clinical trials and certainly that no other associated reactions happened as well. Right, and I, I think for cases like this, in terms of the pharmacovigilance, it's also um, important to, you know, have some observation potentially of the next dose, and if hives were to to develop, to further update that pharmacovigilance process to say this is uh, what happened next. Well, this has certainly been a fascinating conversation. But before we wrap up, Dr. Roberts, can you share your one take-home message for our audience? So I think it's really important that patients with hemophilia A um, tailor their management to their individual goals and to really be in close contact with their provider to discuss what type of therapies work best for them, especially as we're entering this era with many different options of both factor-based and non-factor-based therapies and even gene therapy in the near future. It's also important to recognize that patients' needs may change in different seasons of their life. So this should be an ongoing and active discussion with their provider. I completely agree, Dr. Roberts. I think the one message I would add is just to 
really encourage the patients and families as they grow through the lifespan to have a system that they develop to record what's happening, whether it's calendars, paper, mobile apps, to really be sure that they're able to track and report what's happening. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and to thank you, Dr. Roberts, for joining me and sharing all of these valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com Prova. Thank you for listening.